This is The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. The general election, the first Tuesday in November, is 12 weeks from tomorrow. Over the weekend, Hawaii's primary election saw big numbers for turnout and a few surprises. Former Honolulu Advertiser political editor Jerry Burris joins us uh, live on the phone. And, uh, Jerry, what was your biggest takeaway from, from the primaries, would you say? Well, good morning, Bill. I think actually there were two takeaways. The first, I have to congratulate the elections officials for for struggling through what was an unprecedented uh, number of ballots and unprecedented style of voting. You know, it's 100% mail-in. And so far it seems to have worked pretty well. Uh, so that was one big takeaway. There was all kinds of anticipation, not a fraud, which is really kind of a, a a straw man, or, you know, a, a, that's not really legitimate, but not fraud, but so much, but, you know, there could be some confusion or some last-minute hit glitches, and they didn't seem to happen, so hats off to them. Although we have to remember, they're not through counting the ballots. Every every report that we've seen says it's final or it's final, and it's not really 100% final. There's still maybe, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of ballots that need to be counted because the signatures did not match. Mm. So in very close races, that could affect something. But generally, things went well. The second big takeout, I think, is that uh, uh, particularly because it's mail-in and you're getting all kinds of new voters there, people who aren't used to voting, is that money and name recognition trump everything else. I use the word trump loosely here. (laughs) But uh, money and name recognition, and most of the big races and even some of the small races, you could see that the people who had some name recognition or some... Um, already some credibility in the community tended to go first, and the ones who spend most money tended to go first. So that's uh, name and name and money is a big deal going forward. You know, it's interesting. You raise a, a great point in terms of that that name recognition. Of course, one area where that did not uh, really follow was was over on the Big Island, and uh, Mayor Harry Kim not <laughs> only true. not taking first, but but uh, sliding to third. That's true, and there's a couple of theories, a number of theories about that. I mean, the one that I think people said saying the most is that the Big Island voters, it's a, it's a small enough community that almost everyone knows Harry Kim, and I think a lot of people felt it was time for him to take a rest. He's had health problems, he's had a heart attack, he's, he's 80 years old or so, and it, I think people felt, Harry, we love you, but it's time to, to step aside and you know, take, take a rest and take a breather and let someone else handle things. So that's the one issue. The other issue that I think might have affected him is that he was handed the horrible responsibility of trying to come up with a solution to the TMT protests about the telescope on the Big Island, mm. where there's an avid number of people who don't want the telescope, and there's an equal, equally star, strong number of people who support it. And he was supposed to come up with a compromise, which he tried. But I think in the end of the day, you have a lot of people who like the telescope who are angry at him for not letting things go forward. And there are a lot of people who don't dislike the telescope who are angry at him for not stopping it entirely. So he was handed a horrible situation and, and was left with uh, angry people on both sides of the equation. So then here's no doubt an unfair question to ask, but as a political <laughs> editor for many years and an observe, close observer of politics here in the States, how, how do you read the mood of the electorate on, on the Big Island coming out of the primary and, and going into the general? They're kind of, I think, I'm, you know, I'm not there, obviously, but I think there's a feeling that they want to change. And that there's, and of course, any elected official in the time of COVID is going to get some people angry at him, too. I mean, it's not a, the, that official's fault, but that's just a natural inclination. I think people are feeling uh, tenuous. They're feeling afraid. They're feeling uh, like, like, like the center is not holding. And they want maybe someone new to come in there and see if he can get the center to hold, get things back to normal. I think there's a lot of nervousness. And maybe, you know, Mitch Roth is, uh, maybe doesn't have all the answers, but they think, well, shoot, we'll try someone new because the center isn't holding as we now stand. You know, meanwhile, here on Oahu, interesting sort of combination of factors here. One, in if you look at the mayor mayoral race, um, what we know for certain now is that the mayor's not going to come from the political world, from from that uh, set of background and experiences. Uh, what is interesting to you about that? Well, it's, it's I mean it's very interesting that the voters <clears throat> clearly prefer someone new again 
Mitch Roth on the well, Mitch was obviously an elected prosecutor, but someone new in the mayor's office race. And the same thing now on Oahu. They want someone without previous elected elective experience to get in there and, and, and change things around a little bit. <clears throat> There's a big difference between Blanchardi and, and Amamiya in terms of their background and support and so forth. But they do share the idea that they're, they haven't held office before. They have fresh ideas. And, again, it's the same sort of thing. Maybe they could come up with a solution to this ennui that we're all feeling. Um, but don't think that, that either, either Blanchardi or Amamiya are complete novices. They both have tremendous experience in the community and tremendous backing from various sectors of the community. And, and certainly political organizations behind them. Uh, but it leads me to ask you then about what, what happens to, say, the, uh, the Hanabusa supporters? Do you see them breaking in, in a uniform way or, uh, and, and other supporters of other candidates? I generally? don't. I mean, Hanabusa and Hanuman, I mean, there's equal number of voters voted for one of those two nearly as voted for the two newcomers. Hmm. So there's a lot of voters out there to be grabbed either by Amamiya or Blanjardi. And I don't know if you can say at this point whether if I'm a Hanneman voter, now I will vote for, I go for one or the other of the two people who won. I think they need to start talking to those two groups of voters and, and explain why they want their vote. And Interesting thing, too, if you look at the map on Oahu, Amamiya t- tended to be classic Democrat, uh, old um, standard bearer type of, of districts where he won, you know, central Oahu, uh, the old inner city areas and so forth, and, and Blanchardi tended to win in the rural areas and, and the windward areas where it's traditionally Republican. So you almost see a Republican-Democrat split there if you look at the map. Now, uh, Hanneman and Hanabusa are both Democrats, so that might be an opening for Amamiya to go after them because he campaigned clearly as a Democrat. Do you think we're going to see some more specificity in terms of policy outlines? Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking budgetary priorities. I, sh- I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's, it's well enough to say we need to do something about homelessness or we need to get the budget under control or so forth and so on. But how about a little bit of specifics? I mean, um, I think in this case, Banjardi has been a little bit clearer on the rail issue where he said, Given the situation today, we just can't afford to continue building it past Middle Street. That seems to be his position. Amamiya tends to be saying we need to finish it as originally proposed, but I don't think he said how he's going to do that. Where is the money going to come from since the economy is in such poor shape? That that money question is is seemingly going to uh, to be involved with every every aspect of a, of a lot of this. Let me ask you this: as as we head in the stretch now between now and November, what are you watching for? I'm watching for a what we just talked about a little bit more specifics from the leading candidates, and um, in the for mayor in Honolulu, I'd like to hear specifically what we're going to do with rail. I'd like to hear specifically. Is there anything innovative in their minds to do with homelessness, which is their other big issue, and housing? On the prosecutor's race, I'm interested to see where Steve Alm goes now that uh, he knows who his opponent is, uh, Megan Cow, who's to the right of him, I think, in, in terms of law and order. Will he move in her direction, or will he, will he move in the direction of Jackie Esser, who is more on the liberal side? Mm. And I'd like to see that thing clear up a little bit. Interesting. And then, of course, we, we're going to have a new council. We're going to have, I guess, five new members. Yep. And are they going to cooperate with the mayor, or are they going to kind of continue the line of kind of being on his, on his case a little bit and opposing him? We will so that's s- something to watch. We will see how nicely they play at Honolulu Holly as <laughs> part, of the, uh, part of the continuing story. Jerry, thanks so much. Jerry Certainly Burris. welcome. Jerry Burris, a former political reporter, editorial page editor for the Honolulu Advertiser, former staff writer for Hawaii Business Magazine. Jerry, thanks for your time this morning. You're welcome. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at 
boardofwatersupply.com. We've all been doing our best to stay home during the pandemic, but how can families get exercise outdoors these days? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with Dr. Teresa Wee about what she's doing to help families jumpstart their fitness routine and stay safe. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of a benefactor of the arts in Hawaii whose legacy remains strong today. She felt that the then-territory needed a home for its growing art community, as well as for her personal collection of some 4,500 pieces. In 1922, she drafted a charter for a new museum and hired noted architect Bernard Goodhue to build it on the site of her family's estate at the corner of Cook and Baratania Streets in Honolulu. By now, you may have figured out that we're talking about the Honolulu Academy of Arts, today the Honolulu Museum of Art, but that's not our question. Today, we're looking for the name of the woman whose energy, dedication, and financial support gave us one of the state's most honored venues for the arts. If you think you know, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Hawaii's medical community is bracing for a surge in hospitalizations for cases of COVID-19. This week, we're looking to see how hospitals are helping their staff cope. When you think of rounds in a hospital setting, you probably think of a doctor checking in on the patient. Well, Queens Medical Center has adopted something called Schwartz Rounds. It's about self-care, a kind of psychological first aid. Catherine Cruz invited Lara Hazenfeld and Dr. Della Lynn to talk about how it's been reaching out to caregivers in the Queen's health systems. Short Rounds is one way, and this is a global program now. And this is by a fellow named Ken Schwartz when he was uh, dying of lung cancer um, several years ago. And he wrote this uh, op-ed in, I believe it was the Boston Globe at the time, talking about two things in particular that were of concern to him as he was going through this as a patient, that one, that he was so um, heartfelt and appreciative and uh, floored by the incredible care that he got uh, from his caregivers, but at the same time, he was increasingly concerned about their well-being because of the, the stresses of the job, the intensity, the pace, increasing pace of the job. And the ability to maintain compassion and empathy and care when you're under um, that level of pressure and intensity all the time. So before he died, he started this foundation called the Schwartz Center. And really, it's it's around um, just helping providers, caregivers, uh, find a place where they can communicate and uh, connect and share thoughts 
and talk about challenges in patient care in a way that's uh, much more personal and intimate and talk about the impacts uh, that it has in a way that they can they can heal together and bond together as a community and find strength together. And so, Dr. Lynn, you've been helping to facilitate these sessions with the doctors. I think kind of in context, I've, um, so I'm a physician and, I, and I'm an anesthesiologist, but I also um, work in the area of patient safety. And I got very interested in the patient safety being impacted by clinicians suffering from burnout and that sort of connects with our current crisis. But for the past six years, I've been holding these workshops and seminars on clinician burnout. And oftentimes, I would start those sessions by by saying, you know, we are living in a paid reality. And um, the paid is actually an acronym. So paid stands for P, pressured, always on, information overload, and distracted. And it's sort of that sort of mind-spinning reality where our attention is just hijacked um, more often than not. And um, I guess little did I imagine that this paid reality pre-COVID that already existed pre-COVID was going to get this order, orders of magnitude more pressured with COVID, with more demands to be always on, more, more information, and, and not even just information overload, but information that's just constantly changing because in this current situation, there is no blueprint um, for what we're going through. And, and more distracted. And distractions not being, you know, like the distractions that we have to manage, but distractions, these distractions we have now with COVID, some of these distractions are really critically important, right? It's it's like it's our children, people who have to homeschool, or, or our parents, or, you know, elderly parents. How do you cohort to keep you know, my parents safe? Um, uh, distractions about our own individual safety, you know, um, staff, clinicians feeling like, well, what if I get sick? Who, who will take care of, of my family if I get sick? Um, and, and, and so this whole, um, I guess, context just sort of blossomed and, and grew in magnitude. And so when I was working on these workshops before COVID on burnout, I came across Schwartz Routes and found that they just connected so well as a potential tool um, for the healthcare community. So so I think when we started um, Schwartz Rounds, um, we we said, um, you know, how do we provide a, a structured space to make it okay to talk about these very real emotions that can be happening? And um, back then, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know, the mission of Schwartz Rounds is sort of, um, sort of to promote compassionate healthcare and sort of. Um, allow patients and their caregivers to relate to one another so that you have hope to the patient and support to caregivers and um, sustenance to the healing process, much of what Laura mentioned. Um, and one of the things that Kenneth Schwartz said back then was um, he said that the smallest acts of kindness made the unbearable bearable. And so I sort of kind of tucked that in the back of my mind when we go in with the intent of Schwartz Rounds. So at Schwartz Rounds, we create a, a space. So we create, um, I would say, permission to have dialogue to be vulnerable so um, so that we can kind of reflect on this humanism of healthcare where we're, it's intentionally not judgmental so we set the tone of the room to be very different from sort of usual educational sessions and um, and we set the room not to be hierarchical meaning we welcome nurses social workers physicians um, aides um, physician assistants, uh, um, advanced nurse practitioners, physical therapists, community health workers. We've had people who are transporters, um, who work in people who work in security. Um, it's meant to not be exclusive, but inclusive of everybody who's involved in that team um, for the patient. And, and we nurture something that I call psychological safety. So it's sort of a space where every person in the room feels accepted and respected, and that's a safe safe place to sort of talk and reflect and, and even maybe take some risks, personal risks. And Laura, um, I know when we were talking sure. earlier, you had mentioned, you know, you had, a I think, an auditorium full of this cross-section of workers in the hospital and that some of it also then transformed online and into chat rooms. Yeah, and it's interesting because the way that Schwartz Rounds is set up, um, it's meant to be a confidential space, too, to, to create that safe space. 
and it's supposed to be in person, at least by tradition. So when COVID happened and everybody, uh, you know, had to social distance and stay at home, the whole organization kind of struggled with, you know, how are we going to do this? Is this is this a safe enough space? Is this still going to fulfill the mission of Schwartz Rounds? And, you know, we really found out that even if it was different, even if it took some adjustments to getting everybody used to doing things online and, you know, typing into the chat box and feel satis- feeling satisfied by that, they just needed it. They needed this space and needed a bil- some way to connect with each other. And we found over time, because we, we'd only plan to do these in a, you know, a few weeks in a row and then kind of space it out. I think we're now, we run about 12 weeks straight every single week because we had so many people um, usually seven to a, seventy to a hundred every single session, uh, jump on and just say, "Hey, this has been a lifeline for us." Just to find some way to connect with each other, just some way to share how we're feeling and to to break our isolation and to break some of the loneliness, not just physically but in our minds. Even if we, you know, do have to come to work sometimes. So over once people got a little bit used to it, the chat box just started to explode. And I I tell you, I think we have more comments now than if they were standing in a room commenting themselves because we've heard a lot of people say um, it, it provides a little extra layer of safety to us, especially when we're feeling so particularly vulnerable that we feel even more comfortable in a sense um, expressing ourselves this way through a chat box, uh, at least for the time being. So it's really become an important tool and they've been able to use the technology in a way that, at least as much as we can right now, feel fulfilling and help them feel connected. I think as a physician, I, I feel like I'm often asked to fix things, right? And so short rounds is not about fixing. It's, it's about learning how I can be a better clinician by either understanding my patients and the other members of my team. It's so common in this situation for us to get so task-oriented. It's like, okay, we have all this new information we have to put together and we've got to take care of our patients and there's, you know, 5 million new protocols and things that we have to load in our brain and remember them all. And in a way, after a while, after, after the initial, you know, what's the new protocol um, is done, we almost feel comfortable like, okay, so now I know my protocol. And this is sort of saying, you know, it's more than just the protocols. It's It's the fatigue, it's the exhaustion, it's the grief, it's the insomnia, that that isolation. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get deployed into a clinical unit I've never been in before. It's it's like, it's it's. I've been thinking about quitting my job and why did I even get into healthcare? It's saying that we know everybody has these and it's not to poo-poo them. These are real and we need to have a place to kind of talk about it and it's okay to talk about it. It's, um, uh, it's healthy to talk about it. But I think also a piece of this is to not tell people this is just about you. If you just be, are more mindful and you're just more reflective or you just meditate more, you'll be okay. I mean, this is, these psychological kind of effects or how we um, maintain our mental health or prevent burnout or however you want to think about it is a combination of both that individual as well as the system. And Schwartz Rounds tries to look at how can we create more of that system. Sometimes we use this analogy about the canary in the coal mine. So it's it's not the canary that's toxic, it's, it's the coal mine. And so as leaders, we have to be just as um, mindful about how to consider the system um, and how to consider the of intervention create a system that makes the environment that we happen to be living in right now that has toxic components, how do we make it less toxic? How do we make it a healing environment and a a nurturing environment and an environment that is filled with with compassion and humanism? We've got two big things on the landscape. One is the reopening of schools. The other is, you know, reopening of our economy and tourism. And we might see more patients in our hospitals and be dealing with rougher times ahead. It's interesting that you brought that up because we were just talking about that earlier today uh, for um, our next session, knowing that that's coming up and how might we engage our providers and our, our healthcare workers in a way that helps them connect with, with that. And, and we were talking about dealing with a change in what may be something of a routine for 
for folks right now, or at least grasping at some type of routine uh, through this uh, COVID crisis. And then uh, this being, for lack of a better word, maybe disrupting that uh, makeshift routine a little bit and then dealing with that, um, as I think Dr. Lynn mentioned, um, at a time when we're so fatigued already. This is not new anymore. Uh, and a lot of providers, uh, the, the, for all of us in the community, to have the energy at this point in time to now then, oh, my gosh, is it, are we going at it again? Or, or maybe this is still the same wave. But sort of having to come at it at a different angle a little bit, knowing how deep we are into this and then having to ramp up again and figure out how to deal with it um, as a society, as a culture, and, and amongst our community and with ourselves. We know we're going to have trigger events. And like you said, the school opening is a trigger event, right? And reclosing is also a trigger event. Opening up to tourism is a trigger event. And if we look at the psychological patterns during public disasters, we, we know there's a little bit of some expectation of emotional highs and lows, you know, that we go through and they can last for a year or more. So, you know, one of the graphs, we, we look at this graph, the graph that you can look at emotional highs and lows over a public disaster um, period. And um, it, it goes from from at the beginning when you know it's coming but it's not there yet and you're anxious and the, the threat is there and then there's this whole period of sort of heroism and cohesion and the community all comes together and we're like oh we're one big great society and one great one community which is good um, and wonderful but also to know that that at some point that adrenaline runs out and um, emotionally people will get angry and fatigued and cynical and these trigger events um, because I think some of that heroism and cohesion we've passed, um, but there's still probably some to come. But um, I think these trigger events create another sense of, hmm, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, our, our, um, what are the new rules? Um, what are we going to do? And I think what's important for at least Laura and I have been talking about what's what's different about this of COVID and the pandemic is we use that model, but that model also um, looks at disasters like hurricane, like Katrina or a terrorist attack, like, or, or like the Boston marathon bombing. And those in a way have sort of a finite start and end. And the pandemic seemingly seems a bit infinite right now. And so I think that adds to that exhaustion, the fatigue and the moral distress. And I think that that's why these system things that we put in place, we can't say, Oh, we're just going to put short rounds in for, 12 sessions or five sessions or 20 sessions. It's got to be, if it's an effective intervention, we've got to think about supporting our community for the long haul. Building emotional resilience for the long haul. That was Lara Hazenfield and Dr. Della Lynn talking with Catherine Cruz about what Queens Health Systems is doing to support its staff during the pandemic. We'll have more later this week about what other hospitals across the state are doing. Triggers of a different kind, part of the discussion around COVID-19. What metrics might push the island of Oahu in particular to further restrictions? But there is a plan in place for the state. We may just not be following it. That's the topic of an article today by Honolulu Civil Beat business reporter Stuart Yurton, who joins us now. And Stuart, as you point out, there's been a guiding report of sorts that's been out for some time called Beyond Recovery, reopening Hawaii. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, so there there was a report, and again, the uh, economic recovery navigator, as he's called, uh, Alan Oshima in the governor's office, uh, uh, produced this report or produced it along with the governor's office. And, and one of the key things is that there, there's a, a matrix, a color-coded matrix that says um, – 
here's where we should be on the reopening, depending on a number of metrics and milestones uh, that that are uh, related to uh, public public health and uh, public health and, and the uh, virus. The the idea was that when we reached these milestones and were there for a certain amount of time, a couple of weeks, we could move another step toward reopening. And uh, conversely, it, if we started backing away from those, we would uh, eventually have to reclose. So that's, um, that's what they use. And, and again, it has things like prevalence, like how widespread is the virus? Um, do we have enough hospital beds and uh, hospital capacity? Uh, contact tracing, there's been a lot of discussion about that lately. Where are we in our contact tracing capacity, testing capacity, all of these things. And so the idea was if, it, if, if, we're, if we're good to go uh, with all of these metrics, we can open even further and uh, go beyond simply um, even where we are now with this act with care mode to something more like uh, recovery where there's almost no disruptions. So that's what we're supposed to be using. That was the plan. The question is, are we using it? And part of that is, again, you, you mentioned some of the different metrics that they, they look at. These are not the metrics that we hear about, although we do hear from time to time about hospital um, uh, capacity rates, things like that. But some of those others we don't hear so much. We, we get sort of the daily scorecard of new cases and cumulative cases. But there has been arguably less attention on some of these other points. Well, that's right. So, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to get a handle on now is contact tracing. Uh, what is our uh, capacity or for that, and and where are we? Uh, last week, the uh, epidemiologist, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Park, acknowledged that we didn't have enough uh, contact tracers, but the one of the questions was how uh, short we are. In any case, when you look at this. <clears throat> And again, I talked to Josh Green about it for the, the lieutenant governor, who's also a medical doctor for, for this article. You know, right now we're in this yellow zone, which is act with care. Um, but if you look at things like the prevalence of the disease, which seems to be pretty widespread of community spread, as they call it, and uncontrolled, and you look at the contact tracing capacity, which is really inadequate, it seems, uh, those two uh, criteria should, really should place us more in uh, not just the orange area, but maybe even the red area, which is stay at home again. Remember that when we all had to stay at home all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. So the question is, how did how does this how do these triggers or these metrics that seem to be putting us more at red lead? Uh, say, the mayor of, of Honolulu, Mayor Caldwell, to say, okay, well, the what we're going to do is close the beaches and the hiking trails. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned throughout this process that there's there's a real lack of transparency, all of us, in terms of reporting out the story of, have experienced this. But you write a bit about Scott Psyche's experiences with trying to get some useful data. Talk, talk a bit about that. Right. Well, the, the Speaker of the House is uh, also the co-chair of a, another committee looking at recovery and response to COVID. He, he's saying, Health Department, please tell us where these cases are coming from. Uh, you don't have to give this the precise uh, place, but tell us generally, was it a beach party? And when was it? And how many cases? And uh, just to let people know, don't go to beach parties, don't, right. or if it was at a bar, don't and, go to a bar. And, yeah. and again, coming up with that concluding part of, and here is why, here is the data behind that. The chase for transparency continuing, and uh, Stuart, business reporter Stuart Yurton, today's reality check, you can read more on his story at civilbeat.org. And Stuart, thanks very much. Thank you, Bill, so much. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, providing palliative, hospice, and bereavement care, now hiring RNs, CNAs, and other health care positions. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. On this week's On the Media, seeking answers to our domestic troubles, we look east 
to Poland, a country wrestling with disinformation, xenophobia, and a battle over its own story. The assumption that we had finished with those arguments and that we'd all learned the lessons of the Second World War was wrong. Tune in for this week's On the Media from WNYC. Starting this evening at 7, following The Body Show. This Tuesday on HPR2, it's the next in our Hawaii Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. It's a soundscape of Nordic nature and beauty, as conductor Carlos Miguel Prieto and pianist Soyun Kate Lee perform Grieg's beloved concerto and Sibelius's powerful Symphony No. 2. Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, following evening concert. Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. For today's Stargazer, we learn about an astronomical first recorded by the legendary Hubble Space Telescope. Here's HPR's Dave Lawrence talking with Christopher Phillips. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet. And as usual, we're fortunate to have astronomer Christopher Phillips as our guide. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be seen in the east after sunset, with Mars rising also in the east at around 10 p.m. The moon is approaching its new moon phase towards week's end, so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And here's a story about a piece of technology that just keeps on giving and another astronomical first two from the Hubble. Indeed. It's 30 years old as well. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. And it's, it's crazy. And it's continuing its track record of astronomical firsts. This time, the legendary space telescope was used to observe a total lunar eclipse. This is the first time any space telescope has performed such an observation. Now, you may be wondering why Hubble was used to observe a very large and obvious target. Well, the observations of the moon as it passed through the Earth's shadow, or umbra as it is known in astronomy, actually provides a great analog of transiting exoplanets as they orbit their host star. And make the connection to how that helps us understand the alien worlds. Well, if you've ever seen a lunar eclipse, you'll notice that the moon turns a deep shade of red. This is due to sunlight being filtered through the Earth's atmosphere and then reflecting off the lunar surface. By analyzing this light, we can determine the presence of chemicals in the atmosphere of the Earth. In this case, Hubble was able to detect ozone in the reflected light. And you're saying the same thing could maybe detect atmospheres on alien planets. Exactly. Now, while Hubble itself can't do that, the more advanced ground and space-based telescopes, such as the James Webb and the European Extremely Large Telescope that will come online sometime this decade, <laughs> will be able to do that. And I guess if we detect ozone in the atmosphere on another planet, that's a, a big one. Yes, it's a very big one, in fact, because ozone is a byproduct of molecular oxygen, which itself is a byproduct of life. And perhaps that next generation of space telescopes will answer that question. It's going to be an extremely exciting decade for astronomy and our quest to find life in the universe. And big competition for them from the Hubble, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keeps on giving. It's Christopher Phillips. Thanks, man. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the benefactor of what is now the Honolulu Museum of Art. She was Anna Rice Cook, widow of Charles M. Cook Sr., a woman who put her passion for art into the establishment of a museum. It opened on April 8, 1927, with a reception that included a traditional Hawaiian blessing and music performed by the Royal Hawaiian Band. Artists whose work was on display back then included Madge Tennant, Shirley Russell, Alexander McLeod, and William Twig Smith. The architect Bertram Goodhue designed the Honolulu Academy of Arts to take maximum advantage of the sunshine and trade wind breezes at the corner of Ward Avenue and Baratania Street in Honolulu. The museum's still there, of course, and now is home to more than 34,000 works of art, 
with an Asian and Asia-Pacific collection that draws visitors from all over the world. Just remember now, it's called the Honolulu Museum of Art. And we had a winner, Marsha Hee, on Volcano on the Big Island knew that. She said her parents were big supporters of the arts as she grew up here on Oahu. She remembers many visits to the Academy and seeing Mrs. Cook's portrait. That's today's quiz. If you have one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The COVID-19 pandemic has sent unemployment rates in some areas to levels unmatched since the Great Depression. While those filing for unemployment are high across the state, Maui County has been especially hit hard because of its concentration of hospitality jobs. But there are jobs available, and they can be found at the Maui County Virtual Job Fair. Linda Pupolo is executive director of the Maui County Workforce Development Board. She spoke to the conversations Jason Ubai last week about available opportunities and the new website. This whole project, Maui County VirtualJobFair.com, is a collaboration between the Maui County Workforce Development Board, the Maui County Office of the Mayor, and Maui County Office of Economic Development, and the University of Hawaii Maui Campus. And it was a true collaboration. We had many meetings, and, and everybody had a say in how we would develop it. When COVID first came, when we first learned about it, what happened was that we were completely un- unprepared. So was um, everybody. Unemployment, us. We had a 2.6 unemployment rate and a staff for a 2.6 unemployment rate. So over the last couple of months, up to July 25th, 57,074 people have filed unemployment claims. And another, I don't know, another 2,000 still haven't probably gotten in. So if you look at the statistics of the state, our population is about 11.83% of the state population, but our unemployment is over 18%. Maui County is definitely the hardest hit county of all the counties in the state. We we're really scrambling. We had to close our doors. People needed jobs. There weren't any jobs. We weren't sure if there were going to be any other jo- any jobs. So what we start, what we did is first we created a website called MauiAmericanJobCenter.com, and what we did is we put all the unemployment information on there. We made it easy for people to go. If they didn't have a computer, they could access that that website through their phones and and they could do it from the safety of their own homes. We created a program called Kukua Kapuna, and we had um, young people helping grandma and grandpas and mommies and daddies with with their cell phones, because the kids all know how to use cell phones. Sometimes the parents and the grandparents don't. So people were able to file their claims through that, register for HireNet through that. So as that developed, we were all looking for other things and thinking about, well, what happens if we shut down again completely? What happens? So we started thinking, what could we do? We wanted to have a job fair, but we can't have a job fair because you can't, you know, with social distancing, we didn't have the space. So we decided in any case from, and and we're a three island county, which is Lanai and Molokai, and sometimes it's really hard for those folks folks to access us. So we decided the most productive thing we could do was create a a website that was just like a job fair that would include training opportunities, that would include uh, jobs, employers could post jobs, employees could, job seekers could look for jobs, and we haven't quite populated it up yet, but we've had over 5,000 hits already, and it's only been up for six days. So it's very popular. People really like it, and as we go, we'll get better at it. I know that I pulled the statistics from HireNet, and there's about there is about a thousand jobs in Maui County. Most of them are in the healthcare sector. About 69% of them are in the healthcare sector. We do have training opportunities for people. We can actually help people get trained in some of those healthcare jobs and move them over from industries perhaps that may not may not come back. Um, we all, we're also working as a team to create new opportunities, to reduce imports, to try to create it, different industries. We have sector strategies committees we meet all the time. It's pretty tireless, and the people that I work with on my team, 
or the most incredible professionals. They've just donated so much time to this to make it, you know, to make things good for our people in Maui County. Can you talk about the training? What, What does that training involve? It depends, okay? There are career pathways. Like, say somebody wanted to be a CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant, which is, there's a big need for that. So, if you get if you get trained on that, it takes about 12 weeks, and you're guaranteed a job. But the good thing about that is it may not start at the highest rate of pay, but there's a career pathway. The next step up would be to become a patient care technician. You'd add a couple more dollars to your your paycheck, and then the next step up would be an LPN, and then the next step up would be a registered nurse. And there's a big need for all of those in that career pathway. There's a need for EKG technicians. There's a need for dental assistants. There's a need for phlebotomists. And all the training opportunities are are available. Um, My program is kind of complicated. It's federal funds. So what happens is, is that people have to qualify. But everybody that's laid off, is the good news is, is if you've laid off, you qualify as a dislocated worker. So a good part of your training can get paid through these federal funds. And we do have some disaster funding coming. We've been applying for grants. So that's kind of what we're looking at is career pathways. First of all, transitional jobs. If somebody wants a job, we're going to help you get a job if we can, if we can find one that you can fit in and you can live with. And maybe that's only a transitional job. Maybe that job is just till the next job. And we're going to have some other jobs that, for instance, conservation, the ecotourism people would come in and bring the visitors, and they'd go up and clean the trails, and it was kind of a fun thing for them to do. Now we don't have any activity doing that, and and the work that has been done on the trails is going backwards because they're they're not they don't have anybody helping up there anymore. There's no volunteerism anymore, so we can create a cohort of people and transitionally just to get them some work we can because it's disaster funding we can actually create some jobs to help clean these, those paths another job is the ranchers and are having a really hard time especially the hog farmers because they don't have they're 40 going $40,000 in the hole per month because there's not enough money coming in for them and they can't ship their hogs and their cattle off island right now so there's an invasive species up there, so we can create jobs to go up and cut some uh, tinaroo, which is called glycine, and perhaps give it to the hog farmers, which is high in protein, and they, they said it's good for the hogs, two birds with one stone. So those are the kinds of opportunities we're looking. That's for transitional jobs. And then there's certi- cert- certificate, the certificated side, and then there's the, the regular career path to go into credit education credits and to d- develop a degree. So we have assistance programs for all those things right now. Prior to the pandemic, your division was looking more at like longer term. Are you still looking at those pipelines? What are the big jobs that you're looking at in the future? I know you, you just mentioned that's the a, uh, transitional that's, that's, ones, but that's a real tough one. Healthcare industry is big. I mean, there there are jobs in that industry. Right now, the most jobs are in, like, fast food under that. I mean, all the, the Domino's and the Pizza Hut's all have jobs. And then the next place would be Lowe's and Walmart and Home Depot. Those guys are all have jobs posted also. And then there's a smitten of this and a smitten of that. But, you know, the hospitality industry obviously is shut down. So what we try to do is look at skill sets in an employee and see how – how e- more easily we can p- take a, somebody with a certain skill set and move them into some some kind of new industry. Um, like, say, the front desk concierge people are really good with computers in general. We ha- we're going to have, we're working right now on IT training to get remote jobs for help desk training. For um, It's a certification called um, A+. And um, that's one of the things that we can do. You know, right now I'm forming these sector strategies committees, and I'm asking people to donate two hours a month to help me help the county and help me figure out what kind of jobs can we develop. You know, if it's agriculture, what kind of jobs does agriculture need? If it's IT, what kind of jobs can we think of in IT? What kind of, how do we reduce imports? Ten years ago, the Maui Island Plan said that we should reduce imports 
that would be the number one thing we could do to shore up the community from, um, you know, to keep it stable in the, in the event that we don't have tourism. And we didn't do it 10 years ago. So now it's time for us to do it. So we have to look at every single way we can reduce imports and create jobs and, and circle the wagons within. I think Maui County residents should know that we're working really, really hard to find these industries to create new opportunities. And if you're in an industry right now that perhaps you think might not come back, we need to strategize, sit down and talk to my career counselors and career counselors at, at UH as well. Go on the Maui Virtual Job Center website and there's a, a counseling tab, there's a career pathway tab. So take some time on these websites and learn as much as you can about what's available to you because right now this is a really bad time for a lot of people. We know that and we feel, we feel terrible about it. But it also can be a, t a great time of opportunity and there is training money out there that, that wasn't there before. So I'm just urging residents to get on that website, get on the career counseling, talk to a career counselor, and in the meantime, maybe pick up a transitional job. But don't give up the boat. You know, don't give up the ship. We're working on it. Job strategies on Maui County. Linda Popolo of the Maui County Workforce Development Board telling us about those opportunities. To find out more, visit MauiCountyVirtualJobFair.com. You can find links at our website at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. That is the program for today. Tomorrow we'll hear more about how some of our other medical centers are helping their staff members cope with the stresses of COVID-19. If you got a story idea to share with us, you can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217, tweet us at HI Conversation, or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Bill Dorman. We'll be back with more tomorrow on The Conversation.